I would like to acknowledge that this podcast is being recorded on the traditional lands of the Ngunnawal and Ngambri people and pay my respects to the elders past, present and emerging. We also acknowledge the traditional custodians at each of our delegate hubs and throughout the country, where many of our listeners will be based. This is a moment that requires leadership. China signing security pact and looking to establish a base. People think I don't like China. I love China. The Pacific region has listed climate change as its number one threat. And so, friends, AUKUS is born. With a failure to invest in renewables. I want to thank uh, that fellow down under. I just have two more words to say. Obama out. Welcome to the Australian Crisis Simulation Summit podcast series for 2022. My name is Ethan Montanino. In this series, members of the ACSS will host distinguished academics and industry leaders in talks on various national security topics. Today's episode is co-hosted by the 2022 ACSS Director, Genevieve Lum. Thanks so much for joining me today, Jen. Thanks for having me, Ethan. Today, we have the privilege of talking with one of Australia's most influential and powerful leaders. She devoted her life to Australian politics and spent years across multiple ministerial positions. Her portfolios varied from education, science and training, to women's issues and foreign affairs. Some of her later political endeavours include serving as Australia's first female foreign minister and representing Australia in the United Nations Security Council. She pioneered multiple initiatives, expanding Australia's foreign relations and introducing the new Colombo Plan. By doing so, Australia has supported and deepened our relationship with the Indo-Pacific region. Today, we are privileged to be joined by the Honourable Julie Bishop. Thank you so much for joining us today, Julie, on the ACSS podcast. Delighted to be here. Perfect. We'll get started then. Um, So in your first speech to Parliament, you addressed the question that you acknowledge all candidates get asked many, many times across the course of the campaign, being, of course, why do you want to enter politics? And at the time you said, and I quote, my short answer was and is that I was in fact brought up to believe that entering public office should be one of the highest callings and that being able to direct your energies and abilities to the betterment of your state or your country is one of the greatest contributions of all. Do you still see this as the key motivation that followed you throughout your many years in Parliament? Absolutely, yes. It remained my motivation throughout my entire time in Parliament over 20 years. I recall the moment I decided to enter federal politics and it was when I was on a sabbatical at um, Harvard Business School and I was learning the skills and abilities of a business person because I wanted to pursue a corporate career, but one of the lecturers posed the question, would you enter politics? Would you give back to your country? Would you undertake that kind of public service? And immediately this thought crossed my mind that I had been brought up to believe that entering public office was one of the highest callings. And so I pursued that course over the next two years and one wants to be very careful what one wishes for because within two years I was the federal member for Curtin. But I think it's always been uppermost in my mind that the primary responsibility of all elected representatives is to protect and promote the welfare and opportunities for communities across Australia. So that can take many forms, the development of a regulatory environment and a domestic economy so that the private sector can thrive and create jobs, protecting the environment, um, ensuring that Australians have an adequate safety net, welfare net, uh, that there's high quality education and healthcare, and of course, promoting Australia's interests internationally. 
And that's what I sought to do in my time in Parliament. Well, I think you've shown that, you know, over 20 years, you've certainly been able to give back a lot to the public. And I think that's continued absolutely after your time in Parliament as well. I hope so. Well, being Chancellor of the Australian National University (laughs) is a continuation of my public service. A shining example. Now, we might jump into the security aspect of your career. Now, Australia's arguably had a very long and complex history of international security commitments. Uh, The ANZUS commitment, and the Quad have placed a long-term emphasis on our security relationship with the United States. Further, the recent AUKUS security agreement has added an interdependency of the military and security operations of Australia, the US and the UK. Since the conclusion of the Second World War, the Indo-Pacific has been the centre of multiple flashpoints, such as Taiwan, the Korean Peninsula, and the rise of China in our region. Can you explain how you balance Australia's interests towards our Western allies, with the genuine security interests within the Indo-Pacific region? I think we encapsulated much of that in the 2017 foreign policy white paper that I assisted in um, authoring and producing. And that paper essentially finds that the most important bulwark against security risks and the threat of conflicts is the international rules-based order. That network of treaties and agreements and norms and conventions and institutions underpinned by international law that has evolved since the end of the Second World War. This rules-based order was designed to prevent a third world war. It was designed to provide a framework for the peaceful resolution of disputes and essentially to prevent larger nations from unilaterally imposing their will over smaller nations, hence the United Nations and all the entities and agencies uh, that surround it. It's not perfect by any means, Mm. but if it didn't exist, you'd have to create it. And so Australia is committed to upholding and defending that rules-based order. It must continue to evolve. I mean, great power competition changes the nature of things. But at the end of the day, you have to have a framework within which sovereign nations operate. And uh, Australia does this. Uh, For example, when Timor-Leste raised concerns about the maritime boundaries between Australia and Timor-Leste. We agreed to a conciliation process under the United Nations Conventions on the Law of the Sea. We didn't have to do it. We volunteered to be bound by the conciliation outcome. But the dispute was resolved through that process. And when you think of the number of maritime boundary conflicts that are still in existence today, decades, even centuries on, it was Australia's embrace of the opportunity presented by the rules-based order to resolve a conflict with Timor-Leste that did it in record time. Um, Likewise, whenever I expressed concern about China's behaviour in the South China Sea, it was because it was going against the rules-based order of how... um, nations should make territorial claims or how those claims should be resolved. And when China rejected the arbitral ruling on its claims over the South China Sea, I called it out Mm. because that's not how nations were meant to behave. I used to work very closely with my counterparts across uh, Southeast Asia, um, Pacific Islands, Japan, South Korea, United States, and more, you know, the Indo-Pacific, to strengthen that rules-based order. And I continue to hold the very strong view that the world can't return to that 
zero-sum era of the past where nations could only progress at the expense of other nations or where might is right, although we are, of course, seeing the perils of such an attitude playing out in Ukraine at present. Russia has consistently cherry-picked the rules-based order, uh, only applying those parts of the order that it wishes to apply as opposed to um, acting as it should as a permanent member of the UN Security Council. Uh, Russia, amongst the other members, is in a unique position to uphold international peace and security, yet it has proven once again to be the disruptor. Yeah, absolutely. The point you made about the foreign policy white paper, I believe that was, correct me if I'm wrong, one of the major instances where Australia emphasised the the shift to the Indo-Pacific? Very much so. It was the first time that we articulated it in a policy paper, although I had been talking about the Indo-Pacific as a concept, not just geographic, but strategically Mm. and in foreign policy terms since I was the Shadow Minister for Foreign Affairs. And it came out of discussions with counterparts in Indonesia, Japan, and ultimately the United States. I thought the impact of Australian foreign policy was uh, quite profound when the United States changed their Pacific Command to the Indo-Pacific Command, when Prime Minister Abe of Japan talked about a free and open Indo-Pacific, when ASEAN countries started talking about the Indo-Pacific. Of course, it was not a phrase that was universally appreciated. China felt that it uh, overlooked the Asia part. But Mm. my point was it's all-inclusive. It's the Indian Ocean Asia-Pacific. It's much more inclusive than just Asia-Pacific, which leaves out the Indian Ocean nations. And I come from Western Australia. We naturally look north and west. Yeah, absolutely. Now, as you mentioned, you served as Shadow Foreign Minister for four years and then became the first female foreign minister in 2013. In the following period, Australia encountered many international disasters, diplomatic issues, and fluctuations in our economic relationships. I was just wanting to know, are you able to talk me through the most difficult day that you endured as Minister for Foreign Affairs? Oh, wow, there were so many. I guess um, the key lesson that I took away from my time as Foreign Minister was that while Australia is geographically isolated from much of the world, events in places far away can impact on our interests, on our communities and on individuals. And decisions taken in the halls of power of other nations can have important implications for Australia. And that's why we have to maintain a strong diplomatic network of embassies and high commissions around the world and why I put such emphasis on expanding our diplomatic footprint. Um, I think managing multiple competing issues is a you know, daily task for any foreign minister. Much of the work is done behind the scenes and there were some high-profile consular cases, of course, including the um, executions of um, Chan and Sukumaran um, at the hands of the Indonesian government, which bring additional demands, um, including media time for a foreign minister. Um, I have to say, on average, three Australians die overseas every day and most of their families request privacy, but sometimes these consular cases can be of very high profile and require a great deal of your time that is not not seen by the public. The most difficult days as Foreign Minister, um, there were many, but uh, 
I would say 17th of July 2014 when I received the news that Malaysian Airlines MH17 had been shot down over eastern Ukraine and there were 38 Australian citizens and residents on board. All 298 passengers and crew were killed. It was so much more complex than just a consular case because it was a civil aviation disaster. A commercial plane had been shot down over what was essentially a war zone. Of course, it was also an extraordinary opportunity to expose the lie that Russia had been peddling that there was um, an independence movement in eastern Ukraine that was wanting the overthrow of the Ukrainian government, but in actual fact they were Russian soldiers. Mm. And the fact that a book missile, surface-to-air missile, brought down a commercial airplane at 30,000 feet without radar certainly exposed that it was the work of the Russian military, not eastern Ukrainian wheat farmers that yeah. were in eastern Ukraine. But a question of... of how we were going to recover the bodies, how we were going to hold those responsible for account was unprecedented in my mind and there was extraordinary global interest in the crash but we had to first and foremost answer to the families and the loved ones of the victims. So that began one of the most challenging times of my career. It was emotionally exhausting, it was taxing. I felt the heavy responsibility of being the foreign minister to garner the international support that was required to access a crash site in a war zone against the Russian um, position and to get international support, which we had to do via the UN Security Council and many trips to New York Amsterdam from where the plane left uh, and spent a lot of time in Ukraine. So while that was a day I'll never forget, it began one of the most difficult periods of my time as foreign minister. Absolutely. I can I can imagine the, the strain that that would have. Mm. So at the time you were uh, the representative from Australia to the UN Security Council. Can you talk me through your experience with that situation and the role that you played in the UN Security Council? Australia gained a two-year temporary position on the Security Council in 2013 under the Rudd government. And so I inherited that uh, position when I became Foreign Minister in September of 2013. Within days of being sworn in, I found myself in New York at the UN Security Council because Australia was presiding for the month of September over the Security Council. And it was a real pinch me moment sitting in that huge oval um, forum and sitting at the table of the UN Security Council with the gavel and the words president in front of me and then calling the UN Security Council to order. It was um, quite a thrilling moment. Mm, I'm, I'm getting... Uh, Hair standing up. <laughs> and uh, yet I was very conscious of the need for Australia to perform effectively and efficiently and appropriately on the world stage. During our time on the Security Council, we were involved in promoting a number of issues on um, small arms, on um, on uh, recognition of policing efforts in UN security 
council-mandated um, missions, a whole raft of different issues that were important to Australia and that we were able to progress. Of course, it also coincided with the um, MH17 matter. So the fact that we were on the Security Council gave us an opportunity to canvas support in a way that might not have been um, as easy for us. Well, nothing was easy, but we might not have been able to achieve the level of support that we were, given that we were actually on the Security Council and we were able to uh, call meetings of the Security Council to discuss MH17 and pass unanimous resolutions. So obviously you've spoken about some of the many barriers that may introduce difficulty when negotiating with foreign nations, um, cultural differences, language barriers, or simply just interpersonal differences. I'm sure we can all recognise how important interpersonal relationships are when navigating these complex situations. What was one of the biggest obstacles you faced, I guess, on that kind of interpersonal front um, in managing Australians, Australia's foreign affairs? Obviously so much of what you do is about building strong relationships with people I certainly did see myself not only as Australia's chief diplomat but also <laughs> our relationship manager. It was up to me to forge the relationships with the decision makers in other countries, particularly where the issues directly affected Australia's national interest. And I did seek to um, form relationships with other foreign ministers, my counterparts, but also leaders to the extent that I would exchange mobile phone numbers. Now, that's not how diplomacy traditionally worked. It's all done through your diplomats. But in this day and age, I knew there would be times when I needed to call or text or connect with my counterpart. And on many occasions, that did work to our advantage. Uh, I think some of the obstacles came from managing the differences in perspectives and, and culture, whether it was travelling to Tehran to meet the Iranian leadership over the number of Iranian men claiming refugee status or asylum seeker status and also our involvement in Iraq at that time. I needed to make Iran um, understand why we were in Iraq because the Iranian Revolutionary Guard was also in Iraq and I didn't want there to be many any misjudgments or miscalculations. So I was the first female minister from Australia to visit Tehran and I was told that I wouldn't be able to have a meeting with the President and Prime Minister unless I wore a hijab. And there was one for me and I said, no, I'm not wearing that. So I was told I'd have to wear black. That was fine. That's all I had with me. I, you know, travel, everybody who's travelled a lot knows you take your black wardrobe with you. So I had black. And for a, for a head covering, I had a beautiful scarf that had sequins all over it and a big sequin butterfly. And I thought, well, that works for me. It was, you know, part of my kit anyway, so I wore that around my head. Um, I've subsequently been criticised for uh, succumbing to this repressive symbol um, out of Iran. But at the time, I was told that if I didn't wear a head covering, I wouldn't get the meeting. So it was futile. What, fly home to Australia and say, oh, well, I wouldn't put on my, my sequin scarf. And I must point out the only other time that I've been told I wouldn't have a meeting unless I covered my hair was meeting the Pope at the Vatican. So, you know, I'm an equal opportunity headscarf wearer. Um, that's just putting it in context. So there are cultural differences and things that you do in order to promote Australia's interests. But I think some of the challenges 
in interpersonal relationships were historical grievances or perspectives that couldn't be overcome by building a, a strong friendship with the person. For example, Chinese officials um, often referred to the century of humiliation uh, from 1839 to 1949 as justification for their aggressive behaviour towards what they perceived to be the West. And I recall many challenging meetings with Foreign Minister Wang Yi, with whom I had a very good personal relationship. We were both runners. We were both interested in fitness. He was very charming. And personally, we got on very well. But we would have some quite um, deep and profound disputes and discussions because of the way he saw the world and the way he wanted me to see the world. And of course, we had very different perspectives. I had a very interesting relationship with Foreign Minister um, of Russia, Sergei Lavrov, who could be quite charming and, in fact, funny in um, personal face-to-face meetings, but who could turn to sneering insults at an instance. And you had to come to terms with that. You had to put yourself in their shoes. Why are they doing this? Why are they behaving in this way? And I felt that that helped me at least understand, not accept, but at least understand their perspective. So I was always mindful to try and understand differing perspectives, even if I didn't agree with them. Hmm. And I think it's interesting also that you touched on kind of how, obviously, you've spoken about how you were the first female foreign minister of Australia. You touched on how your position as a woman was impacting those interactions that you were having on that international stage. Do you think that that was kind of a main theme throughout your time as foreign minister, or did you not see it as... I guess, having such an impact on you and your ability to have the role, yeah. I have tried not to see my career through the prism of gender, but I am conscious of the fact that if I were the first woman to hold a particular role, then I was, you know, breaking through a glass ceiling and I wanted to make it easier for more women to follow me, not harder. Mm, Absolutely. So there was that expectation that I placed on myself. There were times when... Being a a female foreign minister puts you in a different uh, category, particularly dealing with leaders in the Middle East. Uh, But but they were all things that I could, cultural differences and the like, that I could live with if I was getting my point across, Mm -hmm. as long as I was being heard, as long as I was able to express my view and be taken seriously. And I found that because I was representing Australia, we are a respected voice on the world stage. And the fact that I was the first female was a point of curiosity to some extent. I recall when we had a one of my first OSMIN meetings, the Australia-US Ministerial Leadership Forum. Maurice Payne was Defence Minister at the time and I was Foreign Minister. And we met with um, Ash Carter and John Kerry, the two, uh, two US counterparts, and they both commented on the fact that it was the first time they'd had a ministerial meeting with two female leaders and they saw it as a great credit to Australia. It's not so uncommon now. I think there have been other foreign minister and defence minister female combinations in Germany, India and elsewhere. But at the time it was considered unusual, but I don't think it took away by any means from the message we had or the role that we had to undertake. Absolutely. 
on a bit of a shift now, we'd like to talk a little bit about education. And mm. obviously you've had such a generous and long-standing relationship with the field of education in Australia. You were the Minister for Education, Science and Training under the Howe government, where you established the $10 billion Education Endowment Fund to invest in further education and research. But under your leadership as the Foreign Minister, you also established the New Colombo Plan, which is a revolutionary and highly valuable opportunity for tertiary students to engage in the Indo-Pacific. And this is obviously complemented by your current position as ANU's 13th Chancellor. So why do you think it's important, so important, to extend our students' engagement across the Indo-Pacific region? The New Colombo Plan was an initiative I first conceived when I was the Minister for Education. And I attended an international education conference where education ministers from many parts of our region were in attendance. And I thought it was an opportunity for me to showcase international education for Australia's benefit, bringing students to Australia. And international education was at that time, I think, the third largest export earner Mm -hmm. in Australia. This is 2006. But throughout the course of that conference, I detected a kind of a negative undercurrent that while Australia was willing to bring students to Australia, Australian students weren't willing to study overseas. And there was kind of a a cultural, almost foreign relations issue arising. So I set about getting some surveys underway as to the attitudes of Australian students to studying overseas. And then we lost government and I was in opposition. But as shadow minister for foreign affairs, I picked up the idea again and decided that we needed, as part of our soft power diplomacy, an initiative that invested in our young people so that they would have a better understanding of Australia's place in the world, that they would want to study overseas particularly in our region, so that they could bring back to Australia these skills and perspectives and insights that they had gained. And it evolved over time, and it's an example of how quite complex policy can be developed in opposition, so that from the minute you're back in government, as I knew we would be one day, and hopefully I'd be foreign minister, it could be implemented immediately, and that's what happened with the new Colombo plan. We held a big forum at Parliament House. We got all the stakeholders and experts involved. We developed a policy that ended up being the new Colombo plan, focused on undergraduates as opposed to most overseas scholarships for postgraduates, undergraduates at a time when students are thinking about what their career should be or might be, even thinking about whether they want to stay at university, but also giving them the opportunity to see what opportunities were out there for somebody who had perhaps a second language school, had lived and studied and worked overseas in our region. And as part of the new Colombo plan, we customised it to the students' needs. So it could either be a short course, a seminar, a 12-month scholarship. They could live on campus, live with families. They uh, could get internships or work experience so that it was a very immersive experience. And I have to say it was overwhelmingly welcomed in our region and I do recall um, the recognition it had been given by multiple leaders. I remember Xi Jinping and Prime Minister Abe and Singapore's Prime Minister Lee all talking about the new Colombo plan when they uh, addressed a joint sitting of the Australian Parliament as an example 
of essentially Australia getting it, the fact that the Australian government was prepared to invest in its young people to study in their universities meant that we valued the relationship. And I recall uh, attending an ASEAN summit where it was raised consistently in the speeches of other countries as an example of, you know, soft power diplomacy at its best. And there was a delegation from Laos who approached me and they became quite emotional when they wanted me to confirm that Australia really did mean that we wanted our students to access their universities and study in their universities. And when I said yes, absolutely, they were beside themselves. They they thought that this was just amazing that Australia would want to learn more about their culture and develop a bilateral relationship. So my hope is that the national the, the NCP, the new Colombo plan will have a lasting and positive impact on how Australia views its place in the region and how the region views Australia because our young people are our ambassadors, they are our future leaders and I hope that the new Colombo plan becomes a rite of passage. Hmm, certainly. And I think that, you know, the expansion of the new Colombo plan that we've seen, it's still relatively a new, a new initiative in the yes. grand scheme of things. And I think the way that it's been so highly uptaken by so many Australian universities, university students is really testament. Every, every university across Australia, I believe, is part of it now. I think we have 40 destinations in our region uh, and, and the Governor-General is the patron. It is completely above politics. It has to be. It has to be an initiative that receives support. And uh, Foreign Minister Penny Wong's father was an original Colombo Plan scholar, so I'm hoping that Penny <laughs> sees the value in the reverse mm-hmm. new Colombo Plan. Absolutely. I think that interconnectedness within our region is certainly yeah, testament to the, the Indo-Pacific shift that that was a uh, cornerstone of your time in, in Parliament. I mean, obviously you've spoken about how you see um, – NCP and other programs as being so important, do you really see, you know, remaining in the future, something like the MPC or another option as being a seminal part of any Australian university student experience? I hope so. I believe that Australian students need to have opportunities to lift their eyes to the horizon above just what goes on within Australia. It's very easy for us to live within our comfort zone. Mm -hmm. But because Australia is part of a regional economy, a global economy, because interconnectivity is just a way of life now, I feel it is important for all Australian students to have an understanding of Australia's place, particularly in our region, but globally. And if that can be done by spending time overseas in another country, And the feedback I've had from the NCP scholars and students has been overwhelmingly positive. It's been transformative in many ways. Then I think it's a worthwhile investment. Mm -hmm. Now, taking a shift to the current situation, we've got an evolving conflict between Russia and Ukraine. The annexation of Crimea occurred during your time as foreign minister. I was just wanting to know if you can explain to us how this issue was presented to you at the time and how you went about managing the international crisis as it unfolded. I spoke earlier about MH17, uh, but I've often observed that while Russia's official and overt military invasion of Ukraine began in February of this year, its unofficial invasion had been underway since 2014, the annexation of Crimea and then um, supporting the so-called separatist forces in eastern Ukraine. And at the time, our response was 
to note that Russia was uh, directly challenging the international rules-based order by its annexation of Crimea, and we responded with sanctions and autonomous sanctions, but unless sanctions are universal, they usually have limited impact. So at that time, it was seen as you know Russia acting to undermine the rules-based order to pursue its own interests, and the fact that it was one of the five permanent members of the UN Security Council uh, was a particular affront because that is the body charged with responsibility for upholding international peace and security. Uh, and Russia would, of course, continue to use its veto to prevent a coordinated you know, international response to its actions. And that, quite frankly, reveals one of the fundamental weaknesses of the of the uh, multilateral system that the permanent five have a veto and so they will never be called to account. Mm -hmm. um, and and that's a, a real problem. So we did at the time join with like-minded uh, nations in imposing sanctions, which were limited in impact as nations, including China and India, didn't impose such sanctions. Uh, but then... Our interests were directly impacted when um, MH17 was brought down and we were able to expose that the separatists were in fact Russian military and it was a, a criminally reckless act, uh, but it impacted Australia and exposed once and for all the great Russian lie that they weren't involved in the, uh, in the separatist forces in Ukraine. I think that um, when... Australia raised its voice when Australia took action in the Security Council condemning Russia's conduct and pursuing pursuing uh, international support to hold those responsible for account. We made a significant difference. However, it is very challenging when one of the P5 goes rogue mm. and that's essentially what we're seeing with Russia at present. Um, sanctions are having an impact, I think, about 40 nations have joined in the sanctions. That probably represents about 60% of world GDP, but they're not universal sanctions and Russia continues to receive support from some nations and the conflict is ongoing. And the longer Russia and Ukraine are in conflict, the longer we will see this drag on with the tragedy continuing, the loss of life, the level of destruction, um, where does it end? And as we sit here today, I can't see a ceasefire. I can't see the journey to a ceasefire. I can't see the negotiated peace, but there has to be one. Yeah. Where does it end? I think that's a fantastic question well, to think why, about. Why did they invade on that day in February? I still don't think we have the true answer to that. And how does this end? We don't have the answer to that. Certainly, it's going to be an issue encountered by the future generation of our national security leaders, or future, future and current. Well, great power competition, um, a return to redrawing boundaries by force. I mean, th these are events that we hoped we would not see again since the Second World War, but it's a, it's a very volatile situation unfolding. Yeah, absolutely. The ACSS empowers the future generation of national security leaders to develop their own understanding of national security priorities and also how to negotiate crisis scenarios. Looking to the future, what do you think the challenges are going to be for future leaders, uh, not only on the, the conflict in Ukraine, but in our region more, more broadly? Well, 
um, there are a number of crisis scenarios that could and are likely to unfold. Um, the unresolved conflict on the Korean Peninsula and the development of nuclear weapons by the North Korean regime. I mean, that's an unpredictable threat to regional and then potentially global peace, and that has been going <laughs> on for decades now, but it is unresolved. China's overtly aggressive territorial claims that have raised tensions with most of its neighbours and there's the potential for the confrontation to escalate. Uh, I used to speak about the ladder of escalation. Once you start going up the ladder of escalation, how do you jump off? I mean, where, where's the end point? Uh, nuclear powers in India and Pakistan have long simmering tensions over disputed border regions of you know, Kashmir and uh, Jammu and there are other forms of crisis that can develop that require a response. I mean, natural disasters, the impact of climate change and others. The technology revolution continues to disrupt our lives mm -hmm. for better or worse um, and, you know, the re relentless development of technology continues and ex Bert's warn that we've only just seen the beginning of the fourth industrial revolution, that uh, the greatest disruptions are still in the future. I think one of the issues that must come into the thinking of national security is uh, the economic issues, the global economy. Um, if that falls into deep recession or depression, it would lead to uh, global unrest. And we saw the Arab Spring uprisings more than 10 years ago. So the economy is directly linked to security and any downturn in economic growth or anything like a, a, a um, recession or depression can impact on food production that has dire consequences for millions of people. Uh, the Russia conflict, the Russia-Ukraine conflict could lead to uh, famines in developing countries. So national security or security and national economy or global economic issues are utterly intertwined. Certainly. Well, thank you so much, Julie, for your thoughts on that issue, but also in general for your time today. Ethan and I and the entire ACSS team really appreciates your contribution. Your perspectives and insights into these issues really are invaluable. And I certainly think that the ACSS delegates and other future national security leaders will benefit from the expertise and, le and lessons from um, discussions just like these ones. Um, it's been a pleasure and thank you so much for your time. Thank you. It's been a delight to spend time with you. Thank you. Thanks, Julie. 